Okay, so I want to I want to start by asking a question. You know, if you had to characterize Torah in general, we know Torah has a lot of details, a lot of mitzvos, a lot of narratives. The oral Torah, there's a lot, there's a lot there. You know, people spend their whole lives studying Torah, and thus it's it's a very comprehensive, exhaustive corpus of knowledge of information. But if you had to kind of distill it, you had to boil it all down to what is the essence of Torah. I think people would give various different answers. What's the what's the essence of Torah? Everyone has their their different slant, but I, I think if I think if we were to kind of poll make a cross section of the school, I, I think we we would all agree that it's it's a book of laws. I think you know if people have um, an education where they look at Torah as being very restrictive. They'll say it's a system of making my life miserable, telling me all the things I cannot do. I think other people would say, well, there's a lot of interesting stories. We meet a lot of interesting characters and a lot of interesting narratives and fascinating dialogues and it's our history. There's a lot of different ways to to kind of characterize Torah in general. I want to argue, and I'm going to prove it from ancient Jewish sources, that a, a accurate definition of what the Torah ultimately is about is a manual for seeking pleasure. And I think very few people would characterize the Torah in that way. If we're suggesting that the Torah is about pleasure-seeking, and we actually contrast that with the content of the Torah, I think it's problematic. Because if you if you were to just kind of list out all the instructions of the Torah one after another, many of them don't seem like they're there to enhance pleasure. In fact, we would argue that a lot of them is about making our life less pleasurable. Like, uh, there's all these laws throughout the Torah about what you're allowed to eat and what you're not allowed to eat. And things that I gather are very tasty are prohibited. So how could we make the argument that the Torah is there to enhance pleasure? And, you know, Shabbos, right? The laws of Shabbos, very draconian, detailed laws. How can we, in good faith, make the case that the Torah's guidelines, the Torah's laws, the Torah's rigid framework for living is there to encourage us or to enable us to have greater pleasure. So I want to suggest, and I'm trying to bring sources to, 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 to prove this, that sometimes when someone is overindulging in pleasure, it actually has a negative consequence. It actually has a bad effect. It could actually be injurious. It could be dangerous to your health if someone is, let's say, doesn't control what they eat or someone, God forbid, is taking dangerous narcotics. Right? That actually could be very injurious to their life. Uh, whereas other pleasures, you would say, are very healthy. You know, if you eat breakfast, it might be very tasty and enjoyable and it's also healthy and it's also good for you and it's also necessary. So what I want to suggest, and I'm, I'm not getting this for myself, I'm going to quote it from the Rambam is that fundamentally humans are, you know, we have this binary relationship with what we do. We either feel good about it or we feel bad about it. It either brings us pain or pleasure. And by the way, all the psychologists all agree that we're here or that we're motivated by pursuit of pleasure. You know, you talk about uh, Freud or Adler uh, or Frankel, they have different definitions of what that pleasure is. Is it 
Uh, is it more carnal pleasure? Is it more a meaning pleasure? These are different arguments. But everyone agrees that we're wired to try to make our life better and to feel good. And what I want to suggest and what our great predecessors have argued is that us, the Torah, as Jews, with our history, with our tradition, we also agree that the objective is about seeking pleasure. The only distinction is what precisely or what arena should we should our pleasures be? It's not that we're saying that we are about minimizing pleasure. We're about minimizing pleasures in certain areas to enable and facilitate other pleasures in more sophisticated and subtle ways. So at the core of the difference between our ideology, you know, we we go back to Abraham. Uh, Abraham, he lived in a world of paganism. And he was a great reformer. And he was someone who was able to walk away from the prevailing custom of his time. Now, to us, we don't understand why people would do idolatry. It doesn't make any sense to us. Uh, but in antiquity, it was actually something very, very powerful. It was a communal experience. It was a spiritual experience. It was a lot of fun. It was, it was very, quite pleasuresome. When Abraham walked away and developed a new ideology, it wasn't about repudiating the whole notion of trying to improve your life and make it better, more pleasuresome. Rather, it was redirecting, reorienting, reframing, refocusing on where that arena of pleasure should be. This is, I think, a, a big insight that we're saying, what we're essentially we're saying is that there's a hierarchy in pleasure. And there's more higher levels and there's lower levels. And what we're arguing is that the Torah is telling us it's, it's creating the framework for us to have pleasure, but to eschew and reject the lower levels and instead embrace the higher levels. And thus, we could perhaps argue that the objective of Torah is to teach us and to train us and to prime us to not settle for mediocrity. You know, the Jewish nation, you know, the, what the characteristic that most defines us as a people, broadly, not just in a religious sense, but in a cultural and societal sense, is the fact that we're driven. You look at every area of excellence in the world. It could be in mathematics, in the sciences, in literature, in, uh, in technology, in business and entrepreneurship, whatever it is, Jews are overrepresented in the highest echelons of excellence. That's a fact. And it's well known, the statistics of Jews who win Nobel Prizes, whether or not you want to use that as a proxy for success, we could argue about that. But Jews are overrepresented in every field of excellence. So there's something, we say that this is the Abrahamic gene. There's something about us that makes us motivated and driven and determined to reach the acme, the peak, the zenith of human accomplishment. You know, that is what motivates us. And you see, it's not only with Jews from, from Europe. It's Jews from all over Europe, but Germany and Russian Jews and Polish Jews and Jews everywhere in the United States and Jews of various backgrounds and even Jews that come from North Africa, the Sephardic Jews of North Africa or Arabia. They all exhibit the same characteristic. So you see like Israelis who come to America. They don't speak a word of English. But somehow they, 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 they're hustlers, you know? 
they, they, they're experts at everything and they get stuff done. You know, that, that just, that's just the way it is. And that's because we don't want to settle for mediocrity. I, I want to t- kind of take that to where it stems from with Abraham, but also understand it in this prism is that we are from, you know, for, throughout our history, we've been always seeking to try to, you know, reach the top, reach the pinnacle. And with respect to pleasure as well, there are more minor levels of pleasure. We don't want to settle for that. We want to strive for greatness. Now, uh, so I'm making an astonishing claim that the Torah is there to help us or to guide us to try to maximize our pleasure in life. And you may say, Rabbi Walby, I don't agree with you because my relationship with Torah has been that the Torah is all about deflecting and repelling pleasure. All the laws, all my interactions with all these laws have been have been uh, of the variety where it doesn't necessarily – it doesn't seem to always result in high levels of pleasure. So let me – I'll quote you a Talmud. The Talmud in, in, in the book of Nazir, the Nazir is someone who accepts upon himself a vow to be a Nazir. What is a Nazir not allowed to do? Cut his hair, drink wine, come in contact with dead people. But when the Nazir is done, right, finishes the 30 days, he has to bring a sacrifice, several sacrifices. One of them is a carbon chatas. A carbon chatas is a, is a repentance sacrifice. And the question the Talmud asked is, wait a minute. This guy, this Nazir, he became holier over the course of his month as a Nazir. If he became holier, why does he bring a sacrifice as if he sinned? Talmud says the reason why he has to bring a sacrifice is because he caused himself pain by withholding from wine. But what the Talmud's telling us is that it's actually a sin for someone to make new restrictions and, and, and reduce the pleasure in life. It's a sin. And therefore, the Nazir, he did a sin by withholding and refraining and abstaining from wine. What this means is that we don't believe, our nation doesn't believe in the monastic life, in abstaining from pleasures. You know, there's a story the Midrash tells us about Jacob. Jacob, he is traveling back home with his family and he crosses the river and he has a fight with an angel. The Talmud says that he left Pachim Ketanim, small judges on the other side. Now, J- Jacob was inordinately wealthy. So why is he going back, crossing over the river, leaving his family by themselves for Pachim Ketanim, for small judges? Talmud says is that because Atzadik is someone who values his possessions. We don't believe in this notion of you should have nothing and you should just have a – there's a story about an ancient philosopher. He got rid of all his possessions. All he had was a cup. Because the cup he would use to drink water. That's it. Everything else he got rid of. And then he walked over to the well one day and saw some guy sticking his face in there drinking water without a cup. He says, I don't even need a cup. So the philosopher gets rid of the cup as well. That's a non-Jewish attitude. We don't believe in this idea of asceticism, of, of removing yourself from this world. We were created to have pleasure, but we're there for, to have the, high, the higher levels of pleasure. So I want to share with you a statement from the Mesilas Yasharim. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, he lived in the 18th century, 1707 to 1746. Even though he only lived 39 years, he wrote like 150 books. He's an amazing, amazing character, a real genius. 
but he wrote the fa- the fundamental book of Musar, of ethics, the Jewish ethics, is called Mesilas Hisharm, which is, means the path of the just, and it was written by him. But he also wrote a book called Derech Hashem, the way of God, which is Jewish philosophy, all Jewish philosophy. And then he wrote another book called Das Tvunos. Uh, das Tvunos is more, more about the relationship between the soul and the body. And then he wrote another book called Klach Pischechachma, which is a book of Kabbalah. The 138 Gates of Wisdom. He has four books that I just mentioned. Sil Sisharim, Klach Pischechachma, Das Tvunos, and Derech Hashem. And all four of them, there's many other books. He has, as I said, he has hundreds of books. But all four of them, he begins with this principle. That the objective of life from the Torah's perspective and the objective of Torah is that man should have pleasure, but not any kind of pleasure, the highest levels of pleasure. I want to read you a quote from the very first paragraph of Masil Sisharim. What our sages have taught us. Man was only created to have the pleasure of God and to have delight in the Shechina of God. This is the true pleasure and the greatest delight of all delights. Again, this is exactly the point that we that we have been arguing. There are hierarchies in pleasure. Says Ramchal, man was created to have pleasure. What kind of pleasure? Pleasure of God. Which is the true pleasure and the greatest delight. It is distinct on two levels. Number one, on quality. And number two, on quantity. It is the true pleasure. Other pleasures are not true. They're, they're, they're fake. Number one. Number two, it's the greatest pleasure. It is the most pleasure that you can have. It's, it's, it's in, it's the volume of pleasure, uh, outstrips any other pleasure. So again, if you wanted a source, here you go. To source to both of our, our ideas. Idea number one, that there is a hierarchy of pleasure. Idea number two, that the objective of life and the objective of Torah is to get us to experience the highest levels of pleasure. So that's, a source substantiating our claim. And there's other sources as well. I'm going to look in the Rambam in a second. But I want to argue that there's actually three points that we need to keep in mind if we want to live life to the maximum. Number one, to achieve higher levels of pleasure, it demands that you have to abstain from lower levels of pleasure. So I'll give you an example. I'm going to present you two pleasures and I think we can make it clear that one is higher and one is lower. So there's a pleasure, let's say, of someone having a chocolate bar or guzzling um, entomens. I put that on one side. And on the other side, there's another pleasure, and that is when someone's fit and someone's healthy and someone's kind of, the, you know, their, their body mass index is, 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 you know, is perfect and they have some muscle and they, you know, they just feel good. These are two pleasures and you put them side by side. To have one, to have the higher levels of pleasure, the more sophisticated levels, to be feel healthy and feel fit, you must, to a certain degree, abstain from the more simple pleasure. If someone just says, just give me the buffet, right? I want to go to the smorgasbord and just totally immerse myself in it. That's embracing a lower level of pleasure, but it's going to detract from your ability to enjoy the higher levels of pleasure. And we can give us many examples, you know? There's two kinds of pleasures. There's like going out and having a good time with your friends. And then there's the other pleasure of like excelling in school and doing 
great in your tests. And both of them are, are pleasures, but one of them is more sophisticated and more difficult to obtain. And to do it, to a certain degree, you're going to have to minimize right? – if, if someone doesn't study, all they want to do is party and play Xbox, then they're not going to be able to experience the highest, higher levels of pleasures. I want to talk about relationships, right? So everyone here, hopefully, is going to get married and have a very nice spouse and have a wonderful, happy, healthy, harmonious relationship. And that's a very high level of pleasure. However, to do so, you're going to have to walk away from lower levels of pleasure. So, you know, the guys really like to hang out and play poker, right? And drink all night. That's what the guys want to do. And that's great. That's a, that's a level of pleasure. But if you want to have a happy, healthy, harmonious relationship with your wife or with your spouse, you're going to it's, – it, it's incompatible to be up all night drinking with that. So you, ha- you have to choose. Do you want the higher level or the lower level? To have the higher level, to a certain degree, you're going to have to eschew and reject the lower level. When we say – the Torah says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. All these restrictions, what you can't do, uh, all these restrictions are all – lower level pleasures. Every single one of them. There's not a pleasure in the Torah that is prohibited that is a high level pleasure. They're all low level pleasures. And here we see what the Torah is actually telling us to do, how the, the way it's orienting us is reject these because that's going to enable you to embrace the higher level ones. So let me give you an example. In order to have higher level of pleasures, you have to develop a very difficult skill. That's still, that still is called self-control. And that still is, broadly speaking, that's not necessarily one for one. It's not necessarily immediately apparently, apparent. But broadly speaking, to embrace the, le- the life of the higher pleasure, you're going to have to learn across a wide spectrum of behaviors to reject lower level pleasures. Therefore, when you say, when you say, this, what, this is what I can't do, this is what I can do, even if that the single isolated act is not going to bring you higher levels of pleasure, but the the confluence, the preponderance of rejections of lower levels of pleasure actually strengthens your strength of character to enable you to embrace the higher levels. Once you train yourself in that in that in that mold in that model, that unlocks all these other areas in life where the pleasure is more readily apparent. So that's, that's number one. Number one is that the point number one is to live the life of a higher pleasure, you have to reject sometimes, abstain from lower levels. Not, not all. Torah doesn't say, or again, Torah is not embracing monasticism or asceticism, but to a certain degree, you need to. I want to say another point. So that's point number one. In order to have the higher level, you have to reject sometimes the lower levels. Number two, in order to have the higher levels of pleasure, you have to work hard to get it. And the degree of the greatness of a pleasure there's a commensurate and parallel degree of hard work needed to access it. So again, back to the chocolate bar and being fit. To eat a chocolate bar, you actually need to work. You have to munch your, your jaw and you have to swallow. It's not a lot of work, but it's a little bit of work because it's a very small pleasure. And therefore, small pleasure requires small work. To be fit and to be healthy, that you might need to go, go running for an hour a day and you might need to... Really monitor your diet. Uh, you might need to take all these supplements. It's much harder work because it's a higher level of pleasure. And again, every – we talk about the marriage, right? The more meaningful relationship. But there's no way to do it unless you work hard. There's no way to actually have 
the deep and meaningful, robust relationship, which is the higher level of pleasure, without a lot of work. And I would say, you know, self-control, broadly speaking, self-control, it's actually a very empowering and satisfying and gratifying quality to have. But to do it, you need to work really hard. Let me give you a story, my favorite story out there about Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Everyone heard that name? Rabbi Israel Salanter. So he was a rabbi who lived in various places in Europe from 1810 to 1883. He was the founder of what's known as the Musser movement. The Musser movement is this movement of, of Musser of ethics, of Jewish ethics. Now, he was a smoker. They didn't know that smoking was unhealthy, but everyone was addicted. People were very addicted to smoking. So Rabbi Israel Salanter, the master of self-control, because Musser was all about self-control after all, he was a smoker, and one time, one night, he woke up in the middle of the night, and he didn't have any cigarettes, and it was the middle of the night, and he didn't have any cigarettes in his house, and the only place that was open that would sell him cigarettes in the middle of the night was a mile away. This is before, before cars are invented. So it's two in the morning, and he really needs a cigarette, and he has two choices. Either he gets up, and he gets dressed, and he goes for the a 12-minute walk and he buys his cigarettes and he smokes the cigarettes or he goes back to sleep and addresses it in the morning. Which one of these two do you think he chose? So actually, he, cho- he chose neither of them. I tricked you. There's actually three options. Listen to his calculation. And this is the way most people think. He says, wait a minute. If I want to have self-control, I have to curb my impulses, my instincts, because my instincts are, are all driving me to have the lower levels of pleasures. I want to have self-control. So I have two competing instincts. One of them is that I really need a cigarette. The other one is I'm really tired. I really want to go back to sleep. I'm lazy. So either option is problematic because if I walk a mile and buy the cigarettes, I'm just giving in to my impulse to smoke. And if I go back to sleep, I'm giving in to my impulse to be lazy and go back to sleep. He he was he was very resistant to have anyone controlling him, to have any one of these influences controlling him. So listen to what he did. He walked to the store. He got up and got dressed. He walked to the store. He says, I'm not lazy. He got to the store and he decided, I'm not buying a cigarette. Turned around, walked home, went back to sleep. To us, we don't see how you benefit from that. Like, what did he gain? But in his mind, and the way he looked at the world, is that he gained self-control. And that is what you need if you want to have higher levels of pleasure, you have to have self-control. And thus to do that, it's, it's work because you have to, you're always resisting the instincts that are driving you and the whimsicals that are pushing you one way or the other. So this is the second point. Second point is that to achieve the higher levels of pleasure, it requires hard work. So we say that, yes, mitzvahs are hard work and they are demanding, but they enable us to achieve the higher level of pleasure. And point number three is that the more, the higher the level of pleasure, the more prerequisites are needed. So, you know, you, they have these, I saw once uh, this story about kids in Africa, in third world countries. They're playing soccer, but they don't have any soccer balls. They take an empty Coke bottle and they fill it with sand and they close it and they use it as their soccer ball. And... You know, like that's that. I'm sure that's a lot of fun for them, but obviously, if they had a great, a better tool, then 
they would have even more fun. It's more fun to play soccer with a soccer ball than with a empty can of Coke filled with sand. You know, I think, but like you want to play Xbox, right? Or PlayStation or Wii, whatever. There's a lot of equipment, a lot of tools that you need. And you have to learn how, all the rules on how to use the joystick, right? It, it, there's a higher bar for the more sophisticated levels of pleasure. I don't know if y'all are coffee drinkers yet. You, you see like, like quote unquote adults are like, oh, don't talk to me before I had coffee. You've yeah. seen that? You know, and I understand that. Like it, to me, like I need to have my coffee because otherwise my brain is not settled. Like the endorphins and it's just not settled. And you're a little antsy without it. But kids drink coffee and it, they say it tastes, it tastes disgusting. They don't, what's the whole obsession with coffee? It's, it's an acquired taste. You have to like kind of work to get it. I don't drink wine, but wine, I think it tastes, with beer, I think it tastes disgusting. But that's an acquired taste. And you have to learn how to savor it. To learn how to be sophisticated and learn how to unearth the part of us that is able to connect to this high level of pleasure, we have mitzvos. I want to read to you a quote from the Rambam. So the Rambam, when he was a teenager, his family was fleeing from the Almohads in Spain. The Rambam was a, a Spanish family. The reason why he's called Ra- Moshe ben Maimon has Sephardi. The word Sephardi means from Spain. Sephardi, Spain. And in the year 1150, when the Rambam was 15 years old, a group of what are literally radical Muslims, they were known as the Almohads. Almohads means loyal to Muhammad. They were not happy about the moderate Muslims, and they came in in a bit with a kind of very more literal interpretation of the Quran, and they started causing tremendous chaos for the Jewish community in Spain. If you hear the term the golden era of Spain, that ended when the Almohads showed up. So the Rambam and his family, his father was a great rabbi, Maimon, and they had to flee, and they went to Morocco. If you, Spain is on the uh, southwestern part of Europe, and Morocco is in northern Africa. So they crossed the Mediterranean, and they went to Morocco, and they went to Fez. They got to Fez, and then the Almohads actually came to Fez. So they moved to the northern Morocco, to the Atlas Mountains, and they lived in caves for several years. And the Ramadan, can you imagine, as a teenager, living in caves, he wrote the very first commentary on the Mishnah. The Mishnah was almost a thousand years old at the time, and there had never been anyone who wrote a comprehensive commentary on the Mishnah. And the Rambam, as a teenager, did it. And in this commentary in Mishnah, he wrote several introductions. There's an introduction to Mishnah in general. There's an introduction to Perke Avos, to Chapters of the Fathers, which is called the Shemona Prakim. And there's an introduction to the last chapter of Sanhedrin, the book of Sanhedrin, which is called Chelek. Uh, Chelek means portion because the Mishnah begins, Kol Yisrael Yishom Chetum All of Israel is a portion, all Maba. And the Rambam writes a treatise on reward and punishment as an introduction to this chapter. If you ever heard of the Animamins, right? The 13 principles of – where do the 13 principles of faith come from? He wrote it in as a commentary to Mishnah as an introduction to the chapter that talks about reward and punishment in Chelek. So I'm going to read you a quote from this teaching because he talks all about reward and punishment and he has a whole lengthy element of his, of his, of his treatise that is dedicated to pleasure. And he writes like this. If you have a blind person and you try to explain to them what green meant, Unless you've experienced color, 
you don't really have any overlapping words that you could use to describe it. Like a, it's something you have to experience to know, right? Unless you've seen it, you don't really know what it is. You say, you say, yes, uh, the grass is luscious and it's green, and the and the sun and the sky is blue, and red is very vibrant. And yellow is cheerful. You could say that, but they still have no clue what you're talking about because they haven't experienced it. You know, they have these videos today of those people. You've seen those videos where they put like hearing aids on little babies for the first time. Very adorable. Or colored glasses. And those people, like it's amazing to watch the reaction. They start crying because they've never seen it before. And these are people who are not blind. These are people who who see, but they're only colorblind. And they all start crying. Because it's a whole different experience that just opens up before their eyes. And says the Rambam, like, you want to explain what colors, you can't really do it to a blind person. Unless you've experienced it, you don't know what it is. Similarly, he says, your soul has its own world of experiences. And unless you've actually experienced it, you can't say you can't talk about it because there's no overlapping experience you if you're just living as a body you're as dissociated from your soul as a blind person is from color that's what he says and there's a whole realm a whole world of your soul that uh, that initially you're blind to it and it takes a lot of work to get that and and he says there's body pleasures and there's soul pleasures and there's no overlap between the two or almost no overlap between the two. And they're entirely different and the spiritual pleasures are much higher. But unless you are – unless you have partaken in it, unless you've experienced it, it's totally out of your purview. It's totally out of your world. You're blind to it. And he says, however, but you can with hard work experience it. This is his last line. We will not experience it in the beginning of our interaction, of our thought, only after much investigation. What he's telling us is that we are by default in the world of empty calorie pleasures, of physical pleasures, which are, that's the norm. And that's transient, that's ephemeral, that's passing. And it's fundamentally different and smaller than spiritual pleasures. And I read you here what he says. He, he goes on for as, as, as you've seen. The essay is very long, but I pulled a few quotes that are, I think, key to this point. Because we're in the physical world, we only experience the physical pleasures which are weaker and which are ending. This is a characteristic of all physical pleasures that they end, right? They never go on forever. So you can have an ice cream. It's very tasty. You finish the ice cream, it's over. There's always some stimulant that brings you the pleasure. And when the stimulant goes away, the pleasure goes away. However, but the spiritual pleasures, they are eternal. They stand forever. They never stop. And there's no, between these two levels of pleasure, there's no relationship, there's no closeness in any facet. And he goes on to say that we have to try to find a way to connect ourselves to that world. And that is the goal of Torah. It says the Ram something very fascinating. He says, he gives an example. So you, you imagine you have a king, 
and the king rules an empire. And then someone says to him, why don't you come and we'll play, uh, we'll play ball like we did when we were kids. The king has so many, so much more important things to worry about to interest him. He doesn't even want to do the deal with the small potatoes, the, 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 the small pleasures. He says, yes, the king may have loved playing ball when he was little, but now that he matured and has much more sophisticated pleasures, he's not even interested in the lower levels of pleasures. What the Ram is telling us is once we've experienced this other world and these other pleasures, everything else is going to lose interest. We're going to lose interest. It's not going to titulate us anymore. Once you graduate to the highest levels of pleasure, of spiritual pleasure, that's not going to be as exciting. You're not going to want to do that anymore. And then he tells us something interesting. I'll give you an example of what this, physical, this spiritual pleasure is like. And he gives, I think, three examples of pleasures that are of similar to the spiritual variety. He says, for example, honor. You want people to look up to you. You don't actually tangibly gain anything by people giving you honor. It doesn't make you richer. It doesn't, you know, you don't actually benefit in a physical way. But people do everything in the world to get people to think highly of them. And he gives another example. How hard people work to avoid shame. Shame is that you don't, your body doesn't get hurt by being shamed. It's something about your spirit that's dinged, that's damaged by being shamed. If you go to the smorgasbord, right? And you see all the candy there. And you're like, you want to just fill up a huge vat and take it home with you, right? But everyone's looking at it. Everyone's going to judge you, right? So you withhold from doing it. He says, this is what Ram says. He says, people are willing to withhold from physical pleasures because they don't want a spiritual pain. I, I had an example. I heard a story of someone I know. They're, a, they're, they're an EMT. And they were by a wedding. And they started choking on... I guess it was a piece of meat, and they were choking. And the EMTs, they get taught how to do self-heimlich. You know, the heimlich maneuver where you're able to... Yeah. So there's a way to do self-maneuver. It's self, the self-heimlich maneuver. And he knew how to do it, but there were so many people around. So he, he walked outside calmly, even though he's choking. He walked outside calmly, and once there was no one around to see him, he took a chair and he did the self-heimlich. It means someone's willing to endanger their lives to not embarrass themselves around other people. It's just astonishing. And that's an example of what he's saying. It's a spiritual pain and pleasure that we value much higher. And he gives a third example. He talks about revenge. The Masil Sasharm actually writes that revenge is sweeter than honey. It actually gets someone back really good. It's a great pleasure. But it's not a tangible physical pleasure. It's only a spiritual pleasure. Now, of course, it's a perverted spiritual pleasure, but it's from that world. And the Ram says, he gives us these examples. We see like these, there's a much higher realm of pleasure even that we could experience not with, not with Torah, not with hard work because it's from the spiritual variety. All the more so he says that this is all compounded in the spiritual world. We believe that after someone dies, they don't disappear forever. They still exist, not in their physical orientation, but in their spiritual orientation. The soul exists. And it exists in a spiritual world. And in that world... It's the opposite. People are blind, but they're not blind to spiritual pleasures. They're blind to physical pleasures. To them, in the spiritual world, says the Rambam, just as it's incomprehensible for us to understand we're blind to the spiritual pleasures, in the spiritual world, they're blind to the physical pleasures. Like, why would you eat? Like, that doesn't make any sense to them. 
The spiritual side of us, our spiritual soul, is as inexperienced with respect to physical pleasures as our physical side is inexperienced to spiritual pleasures. And what he's telling us is, is that mitzvos are there to open up our eyes to experience the spiritual pleasures here, number one. It's to connect us with our soul. Like a mitzvah is a an action that makes us more like a soul and less like a body. That's what a mitzvah is. And thus, we're actually pivoting with each mitzvah. We're opening up our eyes a little bit to the spiritual realm of the spiritual pleasures. And yes, it's it's detracting from the physical world because we have to choose which world we want to live in. And thus, when someone does a mitzvah, it is one step towards embracing the spiritual pleasure realm, which is much higher, even in this world. That's point number one, says the Ramam. Point number two is that once you get to the spiritual world, once your body and soul have been separated, your body's been put on the ground and your soul goes to heaven, well then, the only pleasure that's possible is spiritual pleasure. And by doing mitzvahs, you prepare yourself and you stockpile spiritual pleasures for that world. Thus says the Rambam that there's two reasons for the, – the two reasons how mitzvahs connect us to – and how Torah is the pleasure manual. Number one, by making us more attuned to spiritual pleasures while we are here, but also to prepare us for when we get to Olam to the spiritual world – and where only spiritual pleasures exist and to stockpile mitzvos before we get there. The Mishnah tells us in, in chapters of the fathers two competing statements in one Mishnah. It's better to have one second of mitzvos in this world that's better than all of Olamaba. That's the first statement. Second statement is it's better to have one second of pleasure in Olam Abba, in the spiritual world, more than all the pleasures of this world. So on one hand, the Mishnah is telling us that the next world is worse. One second of mitzvahs here outweighs everything in Olam Abba. On the other hand, what it's telling us is that that world is better than this world. One second of pleasure in Olam Abba outweighs all the pleasure in this world. So which world is better? What it's telling us is this world is a world of preparation. Next world is a world of consumption. One second of preparation in this world is more than any preparation you can do in the next world because you can't prepare. It's too late. And one second of pleasure in that world outweighs all the pleasure in this world because that's the world of pleasure and that's the world of spiritual pleasure and that outweighs anything that you could do. If you could combine all of human pleasure, physical human pleasure into a one pill and swallow it, that would not equal to one second to the most minor pleasure of the, of, of, of the next world because it's, it's a much higher plane. And thus... What he's telling us is that here is a world where there's golden opportunities, both in us doing mitzvos to enable or to unearth within us the ability to experience physical, spiritual pleasure here, but also to prepare us for Olam Abba. The, the Gon of Vilna, he passed away in 1797 on Sukkot. And there's a story where a few minutes before he's passing, he grabbed his tzitzis. And he started crying. And he said, for a few kopecks, kopecks a few, for a few shekels, for a few dollars, you could buy a mitzvah. And once you're dead, once you've passed on, and he knew his, he was on his deathbed, once you pass on, no amount of money in the world could buy you even the most minor mitzvah. But here, a small amount of money could buy you an incredible mitzvah that's so valuable. And he was so sad. 
and he's just crying inconsolably. The fact that he's going to pass and lose this opportunity. And I want to I, – I have a modern a modern parable to explain this. So imagine you go to the uh, vending machine and you put in three quarters and you want to buy an iced tea or a Coke and you push the button and you hear that – you're waiting for that, that sound of like uh, the can rattling down and you hear like a little ping, a little ping. And you look down and something else comes out, but it's not it's not a, it's not a can of Coke. And you look a little closer and you pull it out and you see it's a diamond. You run to someone in 47th Street in Manhattan. Is it real? Is it fake? Is it one of those uh, – whatever they're called, the zirconium? It's like, no, this is a, a, a huge rock and it's real and it's very valuable. So you, you quickly say, well, you sell it to me. You sell it to me. You give it to the guy. You pocket like 10 grand in your pocket and you, you go home. The next day, you're like, wait a minute. I'm going to go buy another Coke. <laughs> so you go there. You go to the bank. You get rolls of quarters. And you put it in. You say, I'll try it again. What do I have to lose, right? And you push the same button. And another one comes out. And the whole day, you're pushing. You're putting in the coins. And and like, wow. You're st- and everyone looks at you. Just get a drink and just come play with us. You're like, no, I'm st- look at this. Look how much value this, how valuable this is. This is magical, magical machine. And then you see, you see one day, uh, every day, like you have these bags of, of just vats full of diamonds in your house. One day you get to school and you go to the vending machine and you see some guy with a vest, yellow vest, with one of those push carts and they're taking the machine away. And it's the saddest day of your life because you had such an opportunity to gain. You're like, why didn't I come in the middle of the night? I should have been here in the middle of the night. I shouldn't have gone home. I should have put a little cot there and develop an algorithm where it just puts in three quarters and pushes a button and it does it automatically. What was I thinking? I lost so much opportunity. That is what it's – that's what he felt because he sensed how valuable a mitzvah really is. Our world, we, we look at mitzvahs. That, that, that's not a diamond. That's a waste of time. That's that's hard work. That's difficult. But when we really understand what it's really supposed to be, it's there to make our life so much better and to improve it both in this world and the next. When we have that appreciation, I think it's a new way to look at Torah. And indeed, we could actually test it. It's something you could test. The Ram tells us that, yeah, it's not, it's not easy. It's hard work. You won't initially connect to this principle. But if you work hard, you'll get there. And I think it's worthwhile for us to kind of reorient our perspective of what really Torah is about. It's not like the Almighty and the rabbis are sitting and saying, how do we make these young Jewish children, how do we make their lives even more miserable? Like that's the way we grow up. You know, we're getting a little older and we're able to have a little bit more of a subtle and sophisticated, nuanced approach to Torah. And we see this Rambam and all the sources, many other sources to bring all the sources, but we see all this whole theme, this whole stream of a perspective that I think it's certainly worthwhile of us to have a, a fresh revisitation of mitzvos. Nice to meet you all. Have a great, great rest of your day.